I love stories, especially children's stories. I think because uh, my father, uh, by the way, my, my sister Erica is here this morning, and so she'll remember these, this. Uh, uh, my father loved to tell children's stories, and he had this book that had all of these different poems, actually, that he would, he would read to us. And uh, kind of passed that on to uh, me. I remember I, I, I read these uh, poems and stories to my sons, and there's one that sticks out in my mind when I think about Halloween. When I think about, when I think of scary ghosts and goblins, it's a poem by James Whitcomb Riley. Does anybody know that poem? Uh, the, oh, we've got a few people that know who that is. Uh, and it's, it's Little Orphan Annie. Okay, And I loved it because my dad would just, he was so emotional in it, and he would get us three on the couch or maybe a couple on, our, on his lap, and he would read this story, and we knew what was coming, okay, because he'd get to the very end of that poem, and he'd tickle us and, and get us all excited. So I'll just read you one line, one paragraph of this, uh, of this uh, poem. And little orphan Annie says, when the blaze is blue, I remember my dad would, when the blaze is blue, and the lamp wick sputters, and the wind goes, and you hear the crickets quiet, and the moon is gray, and all the lightning bugs and dew is all squished away. You better mind your parents, and your teachers fond and dear, and cherish them that loves you, and dry the orphan's tear, and help the poor and needy ones that clusters all about. Or the goblins are going to get you if you don't watch out. And he would do that to us. And we would just, oh, we would shudder and shake and laugh and giggle. But then I think it had traumatic effect on us because we would go to the stairs that would lead up to the attic where my brother and I slept. The attic? Really? You're going to read this story to us and send us up into the attic. And we'd sit on the, the stairs at the bottom of uh, the stairs after my dad would get us all worked up and everything. And my mother would stand there and we would say our prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Right? And then we would say, God bless mom and dad. We didn't do the other part. If I should die before. No, we didn't do that because that was, we were already traumatized already. <laughs> You know, and so we walk up, we walk up the stairs or like, and here's the thing, my brother and I, we had, there was a light switch on the bottom, but there was no light switch at the top. And so if you, the, 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 the unfortunate one that had to be up last would turn off the light, you would run up those stairs as fast as you can in the dark and get under the covers because it was just it was just, we were all nervous, we were all scared, and we all have those moments, we, you know, that we, the stories uh, that we have, the movies, these images that scare us, we think of these goblins. Sometimes we're even plagued with bad dreams. Maybe they're caused by some of these stories or nightmares. Some of the other items that think about when we're scared of the dark, we think about being alone. You know, don't want to go into a dark room by myself. Maybe being lost and you don't know your way. Or trapped and you don't know how to get out. You scream and nobody wakes you up from that, that dream. It's all trauma and I think we understand that. Uh, we all can understand it in some way. And I think about us as a community, I think about us as a church, and the, our, our, the darkness that we see all around us. We've, in, in months past, we've asked, 
you as a congregation, all of us to go and walk your neighborhood and pray and listen and observe. And as you've walked and prayed, what have you seen? As you look into the eyes of the other person, what, what do those eyes say to you? If there were conversations that you were able to hear, what is the tone of the communication? What are the basic needs that you see that are unmet? And what do people lack around us? Is there a sense of security and safety in our neighborhood? Or does it seem to be fear that pervades those who live among us? This is our community. What is the feeling? What is God showing us? What does darkness look like on the south side of South Bend? And it is out of this darkness that the church is born. In this text in the book of Acts, where I, I'm, I'm beginning a series called Dare to be the Church. And, and the book of Acts was written by, the, uh, by Luke, who wrote the gospel. And this is like the continuance of that, of that gospel where Jesus is still the primary character in the story, but it transitions into the Holy Spirit who has movement among us. And as, they, and as the church begins and looks at the dark world, how is the church growing up? How is the church being established and moved? Let's begin at the very beginning of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, so Luke is writing this to an individual and he's telling this story. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he, was, he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And I want to pause there. This is a traumatic time for the believers. This is a, a traumatic time for those who followed Jesus. They saw mighty miracles. They saw acts of God. They enjoyed table fellowship, and they, they saw breakthrough transformation in the lives of many people. But in the same time, it was a time where they witnessed their dreams come crashing down around them at the persecution of the man who they follow. And he goes to the cross, and he dies there. And they're carrying this, this heartache, this brokenness. And then they also had to deal with their own betrayal of this man that they have come to love and appreciate. And they confessed that he was the Messiah. And yet when he went to his death, when he went to his martyrdom, what did they all do? Much like us, when we're faced with fear, when we're faced with that struggle, we run and hide. We get under the covers. This darkness is too much for us. And they stood in awe and wonder when they witnessed his victory over darkness and death through his resurrection. Can you just see it? It's like a roller coaster ride. They're up here, and then Jesus dies, and then, but he comes back to life, and they're, I can't even believe it. And let, Thomas would say, unless I touch your side, and I, and I put my fingers in the holes in your wrists and your feet, and they see their hope renewed because their friend and their brother has been restored to them. Let's continue. On one occasion, while, while he was eating with them, 
He gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, Lord, are you going to restore your kingdom? Going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, they have asked this question before. Before he went to the cross, they wondered, when are you going to bring your kingdom? And here, now that he has come back to life and he has victory, they're asking the question again. They're still holding on to Jesus. They were still looking at him to create, recreate this physical kingdom that would overthrow their Roman oppressors, which is what we all want in our lives, right? We want to see the oppression around us be brought down and then to restore something that they had that they loved and they've heard about, this, Roman, this Hebrew land and nation. But he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set out by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up from them before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And that, that line that the angels say to these disciples, these men and these women who have followed him, why do you stand looking into the sky? What a question to ask. Do you not realize what we have been through? We're staring up into the sky. Maybe their mouths are just like, like this, or maybe they're shaking in fear and anxiety, and doubt is rebirthed again. Maybe this time they feel betrayed. I'm sorry, the microphone, I think it's... How could you leave us now? The kingdom has not been restored, not the way that we thought. The persecution that you faced that killed you is now coming after us. They could see it. And your people, our people, the Jews who put you there on the cross, our people, they don't want to have anything to do with this. So how might they feel? Alone. They don't have what it takes to face this dark world that they now live in. We are alone. How often have we held on to someone or something, or maybe even a group of people that have promised so much and given us so much hope, and then they leave and we are left staring into the darkness. What's going to happen now? And we, see, we feel directionless. We feel like there's, there's, no, there's nobody here to show us the way. What could the purpose of all of this be? In chapter 2, 
Luke will continue to write, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw that what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. As they're waiting and watching and doing what Jesus had told them to do, go and wait, go and wait. And the angels encouraged them to do so. Boom! God, God's presence comes in power upon this group of men and women who are waiting. Have you ever been experienced that moment that you, you're tired of waiting and maybe even you've given up and then immediately something comes and you're like, and it's unexpected and it's a surprise to you. And that is the, this is the moment they have. In the midst of their waiting, they're watching maybe without hope, maybe with fear. The promise that Jesus made to them has come. God's word that has rung out over and over again throughout the ages is still true. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 41 would write this, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, this is God's words to his people, and they still ring true in this very moment. But you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, your descendant, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, and I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in this moment, they experience the Holy Spirit's presence that is palpable in the room that day. And then Luke will go on to talk about what this experience was like. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled him. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews and uh, every nation, from nation under, every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their language being spoken to them. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these speaking Galileans? Which, by the, just pause there for a minute. That was an insult. That was these Galileans, these uneducated rubes. They don't know what they're doing. Aren't they Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own nat native language Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. I probably have heard that expressed sometimes. A little too much. The disciples began to speak in languages they did not know to people who had come to Jerusalem on this pilgrimage. Many had likely been there for the Passover, which was 50 days before this. Perhaps they witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. Now, a barrier that would possibly keep them away from hearing the explanation of all that has happened is now taken away. And Luke will go on to say, or will go on to record Peter's message, Peter's sermon. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read some excerpts of it. 
Fellow Israelites, starting in verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Do you hear that? And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter is (laughs) accusing them. You did this. You betrayed him. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Amen. (laughs) Therefore, let all Israel be sure to this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. There is that accusation again. Paul, Peter is looking at his own people, probably people that he knows and he's lived with, maybe even some of his own relatives. <laughs> and he is saying, you did this. You crucified him, made him both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They repented. <laughs> They wanted to change. And they said to Peter and all the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, for the one, um, every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. If the apostles, if the disciples had thought they were alone, that's one big church in one small space. 3,000, and it's probably just the men Sorry, ladies, they didn't count you then. It was probably about 6,000 people that were baptized that day. And I don't know about you, and I listen to that story, and I think about what could happen, and it gives me goosebumps right now. It makes my heart pound in my chest. How How can we do this? As we look into the distance, the possibility with our hopes dashed, the unknown, we're fearful, we're discouraged, There's something odd about this passage, though. Do you pick up on it? There's something that is in this passage that just doesn't seem right because we've maybe never experienced anything quite like this. And there is a part of this story that seems odd and out of place. What is it? It's the tongues of fire that dance on the disciples' heads. Have you ever seen anything quite like that? Maybe you've experienced something like that, but that seems really kind of odd. Why? Why would Luke write about fire, tongues of fire, It represents the Holy Spirit's presence. And this is not unusual if we think about it, because where have we seen this before? Where have we seen in the scriptures fire that represents the presence of God? Well, the first one that I can think of is Moses. Here is Moses on Mount Horeb. He's he's tending the sheep for his his father-in-law, Jethro. Why is he there? Because he ran away. He ran away from his problems. He ran away from uh, Pharaoh in Egypt because of the threat on his life, and he goes, and, and, and he goes to these people, and as he's up on the mountain shepherding the sheep, he sees this odd sight. He sees this bush that seems to be on fire, and yet it doesn't burn up. 
this is strange. So I'll go over and look and see what it is. And then he hears this voice, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals because the place where you are standing is holy ground. And so Moses does this. And then he gets this call, this commission from God that says, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you, I'm sending you to my people, to your people, to go and rescue them. And of course, here's Moses, who has ran away from all of that. He said, you're sending me back? And then he makes this list of all of these things that, that disqualify him in his mind of why he shouldn't go there. I have poor speech. I, I, uh, I'm alone. Who will speak for me? I don't have enough. I don't know what to do. And of course, every turn of the corner, God will say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I am going to do, and this is who I am. And the last, last thing that Moses will say, what do I say, who do I say to the people has sent me? And God simply says to him, tell them, I am has sent me to you. Sounds so simple. But Mo God is telling Moses, it is my presence that goes with you. It's not you. It's not you standing alone, but as you go to Pharaoh, I am there with you. I am giving you everything that you need. When you look at what, whatever the world wants to say about your inadequacies, whatever you, story that you want to listen to in your mind, that is all covered over. My presence is with you. The second time that uh, is still during the time of Moses is after he, after he has seen this rescue and the, the Israelites come out into the wilderness and they, they leave Egypt. Moses is given this instruction to build what? Build a tent for God. It's a tabernacle. It's a tent for God. Build, build me a tent so I might come and my presence might dwell there and go with you. And as soon as that happens, as they are in the desert, as they have looked at the vastness of this wilderness, and they don't have water, <laughs> and they don't have food, and they're complaining, and it's real, and they feel hopeless, directionless, wandering. And then this pillar of fire comes and dwells over the tabernacle. And God says to them, whenever this pillar of fire lifts up and begins to move, you go. My presence goes with you. Wherever you go, wherever I send you, in order for that to happen in my life, I must cultivate it though, right? I must be in the presence of God and courageously by faith go where he leads me to go. Even if it seems it might not be going anywhere at the moment, I am still ready to go. I am still ready to go. And I trust that this wilderness wandering I am in right now is having a refining purpose on my life because it is making me into the person that he wants me to be. He is making us into the people that he wants us to be here on the south side of South Bend. If you feel like we as a church are wondering that we're directionless, God is not surprised by that. He knows what he is doing right now, and his presence is right here, right now, within each and every one of us. And so what he might be doing now is just preparing us. Ready? for that moment where he is going to come in power in this church and in this community. Now here, 
What could God be saying to each of us with this image of tongues of fire? Get this. We have the fire in the bush. My presence is here. We have the fire that leads them as, the, as we wander around in our wilderness. My presence goes with you. But this is the most powerful thing that happens in this moment. And I don't think it's lost on the disciples nearly as much as it's lost on us because they know the story. As the fire comes and lights over them, these tongues of fire, it is God saying, my pres- you are now my presence. It's not the tabernacle or the temple any longer where my presence dwells, but it is within you, which causes Peter to say, repent and baptize every one of you, and I will put upon you my Holy Spirit. It is the promise that Jesus had already told his disciples before he died on the cross and after he came back to life, I am going to send you my Spirit to be with you forever. You have everything within you that you need to go into this dark world. It was established there upon the moment that you and I were created. We are able then to speak the languages of all the people that live in this community that God has planted among us. Even and when, especially when we feel helpless and directionless, because guess what? So do our neighbors. When you feel alone or diminished on this journey, so do our neighbors. When you're scared or you're anxious or you're fearful or you think that you don't have enough, so do our neighbors. We are not empty-handed. Jesus was communicating to his disciples, I've given you what you need and a message to deliver. Now think about that message for a minute and who delivered it. And what did he say? Remember, I highlighted it as we read. You Jews crucified him. You Jews. You sent him to the cross. You betrayed Jesus. Who better to tell them about what betrayal is like than the person who betrayed him the most? Because Peter... Think about this. I'm sure as he is preaching this, he is maybe doing this with tears. He is, what is ringing in his ears is his confession, his whole confession. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus would pat him on the back and say, you're right. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And then Peter says, I will go with you wherever you go. Will you really, Peter? Will you really? I will go to the cross, and you will betray me. And before the rooster crows, you will betray me three times. And he boldly said, I will never do that. And then, a few days later, (laughs) the roosters do crow, and he weeps bitterly. And now he speaks these words to his own countrymen, his own people, his Jewish family, and says, you do this too. But he's not doing it out of a out of, you should be better than that. It's out of, I've been there. I did it too. And who better to walk that out than those of us who have walked out this journey imperfect and even failing our God. But 
The one thing about Peter that we all need to understand is Jesus restored him. Jesus loved him. Jesus said, and now I send you. So wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever conviction might be on your heart as it is mine, God is sending us and he's saying, I love you. And I'm sending you with all of your imperfections and all of your fears and all of your anxieties. Now we have the same message of restoration to bring to the dark places of the south side of South Bend as we dare to be the church. We're going to continue to look at this in the next several weeks. But I want to leave you uh, with this thought. The title of my message this morning is that the Holy Spirit still is present in dark places. Okay, I read a story to you, a children's story, and I have another children's story that has become one of my favorites, a book that was given to me called The Flower Man by Mark Ludy. Uh, and it's, um, you remember the um, um, Where's Waldo? Okay, where you try to find, you look at, you flip the page, and it's a rush to see who can find Waldo in this crowd of people. Well, this, this book is very similar to that, and there's no words to it, Okay. And I was thinking, well, I'd love to be able to sit up here and show you the pictures and just narrate through the whole thing, and, and it would take me as long as it took me. Now, we would be here too long. And I found a wonderful little video that's about three and a half minutes long, and I want you to see in this yourself. I want you to see in this the Living Stones Church. And then after this video is done playing, uh, we're going to go into our communion time, and at the very end of service, I'll have some instructions for you. Once upon a time, an old man crossed a bridge into a city that looked sad and dark even in the daylight. Can a city cry? Well, if a city could, then this one would. The Ferris wheel stood still and rusted. No one would dare to swim in the lake filled with trash and neglect. The gates of the city were broken when the flower man walked toward them, but he was glowing as if he knew a secret. Well, no one notices the flower man, despite his glowing and even his chuckling as he seems to challenge the despair, the division, the danger, and the darkness all around him. The city is blind to him. They are looking down, looking down the way people do when they have given up. The flower man finds a rundown house in the center of town and says, this'll do just fine. Strangely, no one notices him as he literally glows with anticipation. The young girl is preoccupied with her boredom. The man sits in a bath but never feels clean. The painter stares at the blank canvas. The elderly woman carries too much. The thief is plotting, and no one notices the flower man. No one except the little girl next door. The flower man sets to work, replacing brokenness with beauty. Two little girls are just in awe. A few adults who brave a glance are mostly cynical or even offended. Most of the folks from the sad city hurry by without even looking up. And then it happened. The moment the flower man knew would come, he knew it would change everything. And just as the thief was plotting to steal the beauty that the neighbor still didn't understand, the flower man gave it away. A gift so delicious that the little girl next door begged her mommy for one. The milkman was plain old shocked, but the artist was inspired. The flower man gets busy doing what he came to do, giving flowers away. The city seems to whisper and even shout, life is coming. The streets are aglow with it. Can it come to the fountain? The little boy asks. 
It is coming to my canvas, the artist declares. It has come to my window, the bathing man amuses. Despite the beauty all around, to some, life can be frightening. So the little girl next door says a quiet goodbye and has moved quickly away. But life makes the old woman smile and the old man scratches head. The mother prays, the beggar receives, and the thief weeps because life cannot be stolen. It can only be given away. The flower man has a cookout and the streets turn into a block party. Dancing, music, laughter, and games. Loneliness is swallowed up by joy. The canvases are beautiful. The stories of the ancients are told. Intimacy is in the window and the fountain is flowing again. Joy lights the night. Games and music fill the streets. Their hearts are pulsing with life. Their hands are filled to overflowing. They cannot see over it. They cannot see that the flower man has packed up his bag of seeds and journeyed on. The flower man leaves the city aglow with love, answered prayers, and hope. Why did he leave? He left because there is someone who needs a flower, someone who couldn't get to him, so he will go to them, and he will bring them life.